Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. And so before we carry on this evening, Joel, I hope this isn't too demeaning. You told me you want a spoken word with meaning. I hope I'm not underachieving. Joel, you are a really great teacher. And it's safe to say an above average preacher. You moved to East London and you're here to stay and we can't wait to hear what you have to say. Joel Wade, everyone. I literally cannot follow that. I may as well just sit down. Um, Just as an aside, you should check out, uh, Baz did an amazing spoken word for us at our vision night in February. It's now on the website in the media section. Uh, If you follow us on social media, I'm sure you'd have checked it out. It's amazing. Um, So do check that out. Baz is an incredible uh, spoken word artist, as you just saw. Um, We are taking a break from our sermon series on the visions of God. We'll be starting that back up in two weeks after Love London. And the reason being is that we just wanted to uh, give each service space to um, speak and to hear from the heart of the service leaders uh, about what's going on in their service. Uh, And so tonight I'll be giving you a bit of a a service-specific talk uh, away from our regular sermon series. Um, So I'm really excited to share what's on my heart um, as we head into the summer. And so Christchurch London um, will have different speakers across uh, the day. And over the last uh, couple of months, I have just loved uh, coming to church. I've loved uh, what's been going on in our service. Um, I, I think we've probably seen more new people walk through the door every week, and I've just been particularly amazed at the job you guys are doing of welcoming people, and making uh, new people feel part of us, feel at home here. Uh, it's just been amazing, um, and it's just great that that is becoming a real part of the DNA of this service, so please don't lose that. It's just a great attribute to have. Uh, after the service, uh, D and I normally go and chat or try and find some new people that we've not met before uh, just to introduce ourselves. And I remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, I kind of did that, went to the back, tried to find some new people, and I literally had no one to talk to because you guys were doing such a great job at welcoming all the new people that were here. Uh, it was a little, a little bit sad for me, but, you know, I could have sneaked off to Mother Kelly's for, for an early one. But, uh, um, but it is just great. So just well done. Keep doing it. Uh, it is amazing. And some uh, really exciting news that we are hoping uh, you'll be excited about too is from September, we are wanting to start a load more connect groups uh, that are broader and more diverse. We want people to be able to engage with us as a community uh, in whatever stage they're at in their faith. Uh, If community is what you really want or need right now, we want to have more groups that are really focused on that. Uh, So we'd love to have groups that are over a shared passion and just meet to enjoy that passion. If you love cooking, we'd love to have connect groups on cooking or or making Christmas crafts or uh, football or book club, whatever it is, we'd love to have lots of different broader, diverse connect groups, and also things like um, focusing on a Bible uh, uh, book or letter or a theological uh, study. We'd love to have lots more uh, groups that are broader, more diverse for us to engage with. And also, we'd like to start ones that are maybe only just for a term or for six weeks or for two terms, um, but we just want to have more broad, diverse connect groups so people can feel like they can engage with us in, every different, uh, in a- any different uh, way. So if you are interested, uh, maybe you want to lead one, maybe one of the things I said, oh, that'd be cool, Uh, Do come and chat to me. Um, We do need some leaders to lead these groups. So it would be great to hear from you if that is of interest. And so as I've been thinking and praying about what I wanted to share today, uh, the word that has been on my heart for the last few months particularly is this word, fruitfulness. 
And what I mean by fruitfulness is that something that is brought into existence that at its core is good. Whatever the person or tool or instrument or mechanism, if the output is going to be fruitful, it needs to be good. It brings joy, it multiplies, it's attractive, it tastes good. Uh, and it's, I'm sure it's one of those words that you hear a lot in church and you think, yeah, I'd love to be more fruitful uh, in every area of my life. We all want fruitfulness in our career, in our relationships, in our families, in our church, in our faith. And I guess two of the biggest questions we could ask today is how do we as a service see fruitfulness in our community? And then how do we as individuals uh, see fruitfulness in our own faith, in our own spiritual life? How do I in this crazy, busy city, in a culture that says busy is better, grow in my faith day to day and go deeper in my relationship with God so that it produces fruit, so that it is fruitful? How do I know or make my faith an integral and essential part of my life so that I'm not just going through the motions every Sunday? And we heard um, a few weeks ago now, Dave encourage us to pray every day, which was, which was great. And Joe uh, shared some brilliant verses uh, for us to reflect on over a week. And it's really challenged me and, and made me think about how we create sustainable and healthy ways to nurture our spiritual life, to help it grow, to help it become fruitful. I want all of us here to feel like our faith is fruitful, that we're growing. And we've been in a period every Sunday, and I think today was just the perfect example of that, where there's just been an amazing, real tangible sense of the presence of God, particularly in our worship. Um, And as I was preparing for today, I felt like my strong sense was that for a lot of us, the period that we're in is more about how we engage with our faith outside of Sundays uh, and how we see fruit in that area than uh, on a Sunday itself. How do we carry some of the presence of God that we're experiencing on a Sunday into our daily lives, into our weekly lives? And if I'm being completely honest, one of the reasons this has been on my heart uh, for a while now is that I've just felt incredibly busy myself. Uh, and as the leader of the service uh, with Dee, uh, we've been really challenged about how we model what it looks like to have a healthy and flourishing spiritual life. So a lot of what I'm going to be saying today, I'll be saying to myself. And so today is just going to be an opportunity for us to take a breath to pause and to reflect on where, where we're at and where we're seeing fruitfulness in every area of our lives. David Foster Wallace, who was an author from the States, he told this short anecdote that I think is kind of helpful for us to frame what I'm going to be saying. He said that the, the, there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, what the heck is water? And today we're going to be thinking a little bit about what the water is in our lives. The things that are going on in our lives that maybe we're not aware of or we need to be made aware of in order for us to be more fruitful. And so firstly, what is fruitfulness? Uh, We all long for it. We all want the work of our hands to produce something of worth. And the word fruitfulness is throughout the New Testament. But perhaps one of the most famous examples is in Galatians 5, which is the fruits of the Spirit. And the words will be on the screen. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that is what fruitfulness looks like. And as I read those things, I want all of them, to be honest. Uh, But they can often feel so far away from our experience. We want to be more loving. We want to be more kind. We want to be more patient. And we don't want to be enslaved by anything so that we don't have any control over what we do or don't do. And so often my response with these kind of things is that I, I just ask God for them. Now that's totally good and totally a, a good thing to do. It's totally right. But we, have, we do have a responsibility with these things too. If I uh, was to ask God, 
God, give me the gift of, or the fruit of self-control. And then the following day, I see a, a delicious chocolate cake that I really want to eat. And if I think, well, if I eat all of this chocolate cake, then, um, then clearly God hasn't given me the gift of self-control. And then for, therefore, it's God's fault that I eat all the chocolate cake. I wish that that was the case, but there we are. Um, alternatively, we blame ourselves and don't ask God for any help because of the guilt or our guilt and how we perceive ourselves. And a few verses later in Galatians, Paul says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And there's this combination um, of the Spirit leading and guiding us, uh, but then us choosing, as Paul encourages, to keep in step with him. And so how do we do that? How do we keep in step with the Spirit so that it produces fruitfulness? And as I've been thinking and studying this, uh, the inescapable answer to this question of how we see fruitfulness in our lives is this. It's cultivate a good heart. If we want to see fruit, goodness, peace, and the way of life that Jesus modeled and wants for us, we have to learn the art of cultivating a good heart. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus is emphasizing the importance of the heart. It is all over the place. Because he understood that the heart is central to everything that we do, and everything permeates from our heart. And often the way uh, the heart is portrayed in our culture is more like our emotions or our feelings, or maybe you think of like the front of a Valentine's Day card or something like that. But in the Bible, it represents so much more than that. It's used to describe our deepest longings, our deepest commitments, our will, our decisions and dreams, and ultimately who or what we worship. And here's just some examples. In Genesis 6, it talks about the thoughts of the heart. In Proverbs 3, it talks about trusting God with all of your heart. In Proverbs 4, it tells us to guard our heart because everything flows from it. In, in Proverbs 23, it talks about having a wise heart. And in Matthew 6, about what we treasure being where our heart is. In Mark 7, Jesus quotes Isaiah saying that people can honor, honor him with, uh, with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And in Mark 12, which is one of the most famous verses, Jesus says the most important commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in Luke 6, Jesus says this, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stuff stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And all of these passages they have this clear link between the internal, what's going on in our hearts, and then the external, what we produce externally, the, the words that we use, the fruitfulness in the external world, if you, if you could say it like that. And so the challenge for us is if we want to produce fruitfulness in our lives and in this city, the first step is to look at our hearts. And J.K. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, said, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. And as a service, I want us to be experts at curating our own heart so that we see branches of fruitfulness in every area of our lives, in our church, and our community. So how do we do that? It's easy for me to say, but how do we cultivate a good heart? Uh, well, firstly, what I'm going to do uh, is look at what can kill a good heart, and then we'll look at some of the things we can do or steps we can take to counteract that and, and, and start to curate a good heart. 
Perhaps one of the most famous parables in the New Testament is the parable of the sower, where Jesus describes what happens when people hear the gospel. He describes people as being like seeds thrown along the path, and how people respond is dependent on the conditions that they are planted in. And I just want to focus on one of the examples, because I think it's particularly relevant for us today, particularly in our culture. In Mark 4, verse 18, Jesus says this, Still others, like seed, sown among, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things choke the word, making it unfruitful. So what stops us producing fruitfulness? The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. And I can relate to this so much. And when I reflect on my own life, where I feel like I've been through a season of unfruitfulness, I can pretty much fit the reason why into one of those three categories. We can worry about our relationships or our jobs, or not getting in the career break that you want, or just this general sense of worry about the future because you're not quite sure what it will bring. And the irony, of course, is the more we worry about this stuff, it has no relation on whether the thing we're worried about will actually come to pass or be resolved. And this idea that if we just had more wealth or more stuff, then everything would be okay. Jesus calls this the deceitfulness of wealth, and it, and it, become, um, it can become the longing of our hearts. And it's important to note that Jesus doesn't say wealth itself is unhealthy, but it's how we perceive it and our relationship towards it. If we think it's going to produce fruitfulness or joy or peace in our hearts, it will not deliver. In fact, it's likely to make the problem worse. And Jim Carrey said, who obviously Jim Carrey was an actor, he's kind of this crazy philosopher guy now. He said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it is not the answer. And here's the key to all of these things. They all promise something they can't deliver on. And they are all to do with the desires of our hearts. They all give the impression that they will produce some kind of fulfillment or fruitfulness, but they all fall short in the end. They all say, Jesus says, that they all, Jesus says, choke the word. The one thing that Jesus taught and I believe does produce fruitfulness. They are distractions, poor imitations of what ultimately does bring fruit. Jesus doesn't ask us to worry. He doesn't demand that we become wealthy or successful or beautiful for us to love him and for him to use us. He asks for our hearts because when they are drawn towards him, we find our fulfillment and the answer to our heart's longing. And so these things distract us and divert our attention and our focus. And as a result, we become busy with these things and we don't take the time out to cultivate a heart that produces fruitfulness. And in this city, it is so easy to be distracted. And perhaps two of the biggest distractions could be summed up in two words, busyness and escape. It's so easy to be busy. It's so easy to fill our diary with everything and anything, and even good things, so that when people ask, how are you doing, either your response will be, I'm fine, or I'm busy. Busyness is one of the biggest killers of cultivating a good heart. And our culture, particularly in this city, is obsessed with busyness. And as a, and, and, and as a result of that, we're saving time. It permeates pretty much every part of our world in every area of our lives. One of the biggest ways tech companies sell a product is that it will be quicker and it will save you time. The broadband package, this broadband package will connect you milliseconds quicker than the one you've currently got. Or this phone's processor will load Instagram a tenth of a second quicker than before. And this obsession with saving time can even feed into our language. 
One of these is with the portmanteau, where you combine two words that become one. Now, this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon, and of course, it's not just to do with saving time, but there's been a new wave of words over the last couple of years. For example, we have Brangelina, or we don't have any more, which is sad. Bromance, brunch, chillax, chocoholic, emoticon, flexitarian, glamping, guestimate, liger, mansplaining, mockumentary. And one of these I recently discovered was the word uh, bonofi. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware of this, <laughs> but apparently, well, not apparently, it is the combination of the two main ingredients of banoffee, banana and toffee, banoffee. Uh, I didn't know that, and I assumed I wasn't the only one. Did anyone else not know that? Have I just blown someone's mind? Yes, Bethan, come on. Um, so I, I, in the middle of the office, I expressed my surprise and delight at finding out, and I assumed everyone else was like, oh, surprise too. Uh, but apparently I'm the only one, and Lars particularly and Liam appropriately mocked me for it. Uh, but there we are. And of course, we have a new wave of acronyms. And now this has similar uh, pitfalls when you misunderstand what an acronym means. Uh, here's just an example I found of a text conversation. Your great aunt just passed away. Lol. Why is that funny? It's not funny, David. What do you mean? Mum, lol means laugh out loud. Oh my goodness, I sent that to everyone. I thought it meant lots of love. I have to call everyone back. Um, to be fair, I, I think it was once lots of love. I feel like that was a thing. But anyway. Um, but it's not just, oh, by the way, don't get me started with emojis. And I, but I do love a good GIF. Everyone loves a good GIF. Anyway, uh, it's not just with language. Um, if you've spoken to me for more than two minutes about our new flat, there was an extremely high chance that I've told you how long it takes to get me places from my new flat. Many of you will know that I used to live quite far out the way uh, in East Dulwich. It, was about, it felt like it was like 45 minutes from everywhere. Um, and when you've been living like that for five years, the idea of saving lots of time can become a bit of an obsession. Uh, so a normal conversation with me about my new flat might go something like, hey, Joel, are you looking forward to your new flat? And I'll be like, yeah, I can't wait. It's only 25 minutes from Marlebone. Now, Marlebone has nothing to do with my life. Um, but, but a new game for me is going on City Mapper and finding out how long it takes me to get places just for the joy of knowing that it will save me a lot of time than it used to, it, or if I want to go to Marlebone, which is lovely, so why wouldn't I? But um, this is the kind of games you play when you're 30. So uh, just you guys wait. <laughs> um, but as a culture, we have become uh, almost unknowingly obsessed with saving time, not so that we can rest or spend more time with God or friends or family. Instead, we've become obsessed with saving time in order to do more stuff, in order to get more busy. And busyness is becoming one of the main distractions for what's really going on in our hearts. And Tim Creeder, who is an author and cartoonist, wrote a brilliant article in the New York Times called The Busyness Trap. He articulates a problem like this. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Well, that's, that's pretty heavy, but I think he is right. If we fill our diary with as many things as possible, it will mask the pain or the emptiness or the fear of looking inside ourselves and seeing what's really going on in our hearts. It will hide the fact that I worry so much about this life that I have to be busy uh, to make sure that I can do everything in my power to alleviate those worries rather than trusting in God. And we work so hard to pursue wealth and possessions that it gives, up, gives us this false sense of security to, crack, to, to cover over the cracks of our own insecurities. And we get distracted by things that our culture throws at us because we've been dissatisfied with our faith. Our culture not only tolerates busyness, it celebrates it. Busy is better. And as a result, we spend more time focusing on making sure our phone is recharged than we do our own heart. And we don't ignore the little red battery sign, but we certainly have a tendency to ignore when we're getting more irritable or when we're not taking the time out to cultivate a fruitful heart. 
Some of, some of you will know this already, and I'm certainly speaking to myself here, but busyness has become so ingrained in our way of life, but, but for some of us, we don't even know that it was there or that there could be another way. The busyness has become the water that we are swimming in. We don't even know it's there or question its existence in our lives, and it's become the ultimate distraction. And busyness has become such a reality in my own life that as I was preparing for this talk, this is a true story, because of the busyness of the last few months, they've just taken its toll on me physically, I guess, and I, I literally fell asleep while I was writing this talk. Now, if I'm falling asleep while I write this talk, what chance have you guys got of keeping awake while I deliver the talk? Eh? That's not an excuse to fall asleep, but it just it actually happened, so I thought I'd share it. Uh, but busyness has a huge effect on our hearts, and we use it as a mask to cover up the emptiness in our lives or the inescapable truth of our internal shortcomings that, in, that result in us being short with our friends or telling a couple of lies to get what we want. Instead of dealing with the problem, we cover it up. When our heart is breaking down, we can go and buy some new clothes to cover up the pain or we post a picture on Instagram that gives the illusion of perfection. But behind the camera, we are broken and we embrace a lifestyle of distraction. And this even feeds into our time of rest when we're not being busy. Our rest times are really or can really become more of a form of escapism rather than reflection or preparation. Um, we don't have time to go into this in loads of detail, but so many, many of the ways we rest is really just another form of distraction as we escape the real world for the digital one or we spend more time on our social media profile than we do on us. And if we want to cultivate fruitfulness in our lives, we have to cultivate a good heart. And in order to do that, we need to push away the distractions and take time to really look at what's going on inside. And this can be a really scary thing to do. And we put so many things up in our lives to stop us or avoid us from doing that. But if we want to be formed into people that produce fruitfulness, we have to consciously look at our hearts. And so what is the solution? If they are some of the things that can distract our hearts and prevent fruitfulness, how do we cultivate a heart that leads to fruitfulness? And perhaps some of these things that I've said uh, you can relate to. Uh, maybe for you there are other things or other distractions in your life. Uh, but the first step or the most important thing is just to be self-aware. And for some of you, this may just be, need to be the only thing you do today to stop and to use the parable of the sower analogy just to know the soil that you're planted in. If you feel like you're not seeing fruitfulness in your life right now, is it because you're planted amongst the thorns that are preventing you from producing fruit? What do you love? What do you long for? How does that play out into your life? How does that play out into your diary? What's the water in your life that perhaps you don't know is there? And one of the best ways that I found to do this is with a spiritual practice called solitude. Uh, it's one of the antidotes to both busyness and escape because it involves stopping and pushing away all temptations to allow ourselves space, time to reflect and to think and to pray. And solitude sounds like it could be confused with loneliness, but there's a difference. Uh, Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, which is really good if you want to look into uh, spiritual practices in more detail, he differentiates them brilliantly by saying, loneliness is inner emptiness, solitude is inner fulfillment. And I found this to be one of the most powerful ways that God has spoken to me primarily about myself, about the state of my own heart, about the water that surrounds my life or the weeds that might be forcing their way in. When I spend time in the morning or when I go to a park or go for a walk or whatever it is, but when I consciously allow myself to put away the distractions or not to escape, that is where God is able to show me what I can't see myself. 
And another way you can do this is just simply ask someone you trust to help you with your self-awareness. Give, them, give people permission uh, to call you out on things that you may not see in yourself, both encouragement and challenge. Now, obviously, this needs to be people you trust and you love and they love you. Um, you can't do that, this with everyone. Uh, but research from a behavioral style profile uh, identified that the, the, uh, the impression or the style people thought they were portraying was different to how others perceived it 50% of the time. And so getting someone else's opinion can be really valuable uh, in this kind of stuff. Ask people to help you with your self-awareness and find relationships that, where it's safe to do that. And as I've said earlier, and Dee said, um, like connect groups are great, a great way of doing that. I'm sure there's many in this room that uh, have relationships like that as a result of connect groups. I certainly do. Um, well, I found my wife in a connect group, so that's, that's, um, that's good, isn't it? Um, <laughs> That wasn't on the script. Uh, but the first step uh, in cultivating a heart that leads to fruitfulness is just knowing what it's producing right now. Just like a plant cannot not produce something, so the heart cannot not produce something. If a plant is bad, it won't just stay static. It will produce something, but it won't be fruitful. And it's the same with our heart. What's the fruit you're producing right now? What is your heart full of right now? And the second step is just to be intentional. Once we're aware of the state of our heart and the fruit that we're producing, what are the intentional steps we can take to help cultivate a good heart? And as it said in Galatians, we need to walk in step with the Spirit. And walking doesn't happen without intention. Um, And Dee and I spoke about this in our vision talk, but change doesn't happen overnight. It does take time and it does take practice. And I have one really tiny and seemingly insignificant way that I've applied this to my own life recently. It's so small that I almost feel like I shouldn't share it, but it's had such a, a big impact in reality in, in, my, uh, in my own t- uh, sort of devotional time that I thought that I should. I try to have time in the morning to reflect, to have my own time of solitude or to pray or to read, um, but I've always, always, always found it a massive battle. And what I realized was that when I wake up, I go make breakfast, I have a coffee, I chill for a bit, I read the news, I check how many likes I've got on Instagram, probably a lot. Um, And then I realize I've got about uh, five minutes to have a shower, uh, get ready, and then I have no time to pray, uh, to read, and do the things that I know are really good for me and good for my heart. And so what I've started to do is this. Firstly, I just don't look at my phone until I've read the Bible. I just leave it alone. And I know Liam, who preaches here regularly, he puts his phone in the cupboard, so he's just not tempted to look at it after a certain time and before a certain time. And then secondly, I, all, what I do is when I wake up, I have a shower and I get ready and I'm good to go. Um, so I'm not rushing when I leave the house. It just gives me time to then uh, reflect, to pray, to read, to really have that time in the morning. Now, these are two tiny changes that I've made in my own life, which really, to be honest, haven't taken a huge amount of effort. But the effect they've had on my devotional time has been huge. So what is the one intentional change you can make in your daily life which will help you to cultivate a good heart? And it could be to do with your phone or how you order your day. You may not even need to get up earlier or go to bed later in order to do it, but can you intentionally look at your life and see the areas where your focus and attention is being pulled that is distracting you from cultivating a good heart that leads to fruitfulness? My final point is simple, but it is the most important. Know where your heart belongs. And Tim Keller said this. Those who know me knew there was a Keller quote coming. Um, You can't change merely by changing your thinking or through great acts of will, but rather by changing what you love most. Change happens not only by giving your mind new truths, though though it does involve that, but also by feeding the the imagination new beauties so you love Jesus supremely. We change when we change what we worship the most. How do we do that? 
by seeing that Jesus' own heart was crushed and broken as he died on the cross for us. It is as we worship a crucified saviour that our hearts are transformed. The most powerful and effective way of cultivating our hearts is knowing where it belongs. And Jesus modelled a life for us that is as a result of cultivating a good heart that leads to fruitfulness. But not only that, he is the means in which those things can happen. We are made to be planted in good soil. We are made to be planted in Jesus. As Nathan said, we are made to be at the feet of Jesus. And he is not an oppressor. He's not just a teacher. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He loves us. And we put our trust in him and know that even when we are not working to put the worries of this world to right, he is with us and he is for us. When we know that the only way the longings of our heart is met in his love and his grace and his mercy and forgiveness, not in the deceitfulness of wealth. That is when we can produce fruitfulness. And I know the uh, distractions of this world can be crazy attractive. I know they can pull on our hearts all of the time, but they are not where our heart belongs and they will not lead to fruitfulness. Our heart belongs with him. Because all of the worries, all of the brokenness, and all of the ways we have fallen short died on a cross as he took them upon himself. And then through his resurrection, we can know the freedom and the life that he offers us now. And I've been so encouraged, as I said, by what's been happening uh, in this service, particularly during the worship. Um, And I'd encourage you, as that happens, uh, and as Keller said, to allow that to transform your heart. Like this is the reason we do church every week. We put ourselves in a place where we allow our hearts to be transformed. And I'd really encourage you to come to church as much as you, ca- as you can. Get in the routine of making it happen. Almost mentally block out the time in your mind and just decide beforehand that you're just going to do it as much as possible. Because regular worship, regular times like this, puts us in a place where we allow our hearts to be transformed. Our hearts need that regularity, just like a plant needs watering. So does our heart. And I'm sure many of you have just been touched by the worship today. And I just encourage you to come and experience that every week because it is so important for our hearts. It's so important for what it then does for us during the week as we come, as we meet together regularly to worship Jesus. And just to, um, just to finish, uh, I've been praying particularly for two things over the last a few months. The first is that people will come to know and follow Jesus for the first time in the service. And then secondly, that people who already, who already follow him will find a renewed joy in their pursuit of him. That perhaps where their own spiritual life or devotion has dried up, that you will come to find that renewed joy and fulfillment in your relationship with God. And then your diary goes on to reflect that priority. But what's so powerful is the connection between those two things. The more people of faith cultivate a good heart, the more we are growing and formed into the people that Jesus calls us to be, the more helpful we will become, the more passionate we will become when it comes to seeing people come to faith. What happens when people who cultivate a good heart that finds its place in Jesus is fruitfulness in our character and fruitfulness in our mission. If Nat and the band want to come back up. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.